This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramitush Ohlone land. On each Tuesday of this month, in celebration of Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander voices, we are revisiting conversations from our archives that feature AAPI writers, thinkers, artists, and healers. Today, we are revisiting an episode from February 2020, in which Kazuhaka is joined by CIIS professor and restorative justice expert, Sonia Shah, for a conversation about his life, Kingian Nonviolence, and his book, Healing Resistance. Because CIIS's history and identity is indebted to the wisdom traditions of Asian cultures, we are particularly called upon to stand in solidarity with the AAPI community. We hope that in hearing these episodes, again or for the first time, listeners are provided opportunities for connection and healing. But so when I first met Kazu, it was five years ago in January at Nomad Cafe. And um, I was going in and out of San Quentin doing some, you know, like healing justice type work. And Kazu was also going inside San Quentin doing some healing and justice type work. And um, I was we were looking for someone who could just do an awesome set of workshops for a bunch of amazing facilitators already um, in something radically new and different. And uh, a man who was inside San Quentin said, you know, there's this dude who comes in. He's really cool. His name is Kazu. And I think he might be your guy. And so we met. And um, so the first time I met him, he it was actually the first time we sat together was in a circle inside San Quentin with him doing King in nonviolence trainings. And fast forward five more years, we've had many experiences working back and forth together in many different ways with Ahimsa and his work. Um, just spent three weeks in India together uh, doing some traveling and restorative justice trainings with a bunch of other people. And what I um, what I what was so special about that experience is that Kazu really walks the way he is with people uh, in the world in the same way he does in his work. So the kind of gentleness and the kindness that he just shows to everyone and everything around him is the way that he works. And I wanted to actually offer this introduction um, of Kazu that was written by his one of his besties and the person he works the most closely with, and I can't see anymore, so I'm putting my glasses on, uh, Chris Moore Beckman. And he writes, whether he's accompanying us behind prison walls on walking pilgrimage with Buddhist mo- uh, monastics or into the streets for head-on direct action, Kazu Haga seamlessly illustrates that the indivisibility of personal and societal transformation and our desperate need for both at this pivotal moment in history. We're deeply fortunate to have this inspiring new offering from one of the most powerful contemporary thinkers and doers in the field of nonviolent social change. So that is my introduction to Kazu Haga, who we're so lucky to have, who's gonna start with doing some reading from his book. You're welcome. I told Sonia that I have a mic as well. Ooh, it's um, on. So I, I just want to start with this one paragraph, and then I'll say a few words, and then I'll read a couple more things. But uh, in the introduction of my book, I write, Working in prisons and jails is a privilege and an honor that I, did, that I do not take lightly. It's a strange thing, really, to go inside and receive so much gratitude from incarcerated people about coming in and running programs. I understand, of course, and accept their gratitude with humility, but I wonder if they can ever understand how much I've learned from them and how healing it has been for me to be in their presence. After several years of working inside the system, it was through meeting Sonia Shah, founder of the Ahimsa Collective, that I truly understood what restorative justice is and the depth of healing that is possible. Um, and it, this is not like a thing that I'm just saying, that like this book would not exist without you. Because it was like, I did not know what like just the depth of healing that, and I've told you this, like the depth of healing that we are capable of as a species um, until I saw your work. So it's, it's, it's really fun to be able to do this with you. Yeah. Um, 
And also just gratitude to everyone who's here because I was, uh, you know, as someone who tries to do like as little of capitalism as possible, it's weird having like a book to sell. And so <laughs> hopefully uh, this evening will be worth it to you all. Um, but yeah, also grateful that you're here. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to start by reading uh, uh, just a few sections from the introduction of my book, and then we'll just get into it and, and talk about both of our work here. But um, early in the intro, I start talking about how when I was 19 years old, I started facilitating nonviolence trainings. Uh, this was when I was living in Massachusetts. And after a couple of years of doing them, like something felt like it was just deeply missing in the trainings that I was leading. So I stopped doing it. Um, and so I'll just uh, jump in, in from the middle of the introduction here. It says, I realized during that I realized during that workshop that the stuff I had been teaching at 19 wasn't, in fact, nonviolence. It was nonviolent civil disobedience. I had been training people to go into mass demonstrations without throwing a punch. While that is certainly one application of the theory of nonviolence, I realized how limited of an understanding I had. If nonviolence is simply a set of strategies and tactics that do not use physical violence, then the Ku Klux Klan could argue that they are using nonviolence when they rally. Neo-Nazis could argue that they are using nonviolence when they march, and that doesn't feel right. Something about the work of nonviolence has to be fundamentally different from the work of the KKK or neo-Nazis. Fifty years after his assassination, Dr. King has taught me that a commitment to nonviolence is a commitment to restoring relationships and building beloved community, a world where conflict surfaces as an opportunity to deepen in relationship, a world where all people understand our interconnectedness, a world where, as stated in the Kingian nonviolence training curriculum, all people have achieved their full human potential. Nonviolence as an ethical choice stems from a deep understanding about the impact that violence has on all people, those who experience it, those who perpetuate it, and those who witness it. It is about acknowledging that violence itself is the enemy that we need to defeat, not the people who are caught up in its cycles. Nonviolence is a worldview that speaks to the impact of violence, harm, oppression, and injustice on the human condition. It is about the dynamics of conflict and how to transform it. It is about an unwavering faith in the goodness of people and an undying commitment to healing ourselves and society. It is about stripping away the layers of trauma and separation and remembering the, the core of who we are. It is about coming home. I'm just skipping forward a couple of paragraphs. In my work in prisons, I've had the privilege to witness the transformation of countless people who have committed the most horrific acts of violence, including homicide, into the most compassionate, dedicated peacemakers I know. I've had the honor of witnessing healing dialogues between people whose lives were brought together by tragedy, between the person who almost beat another to death in a mugging and the survivor of that crime, between mothers and the people who took away their children, between two men who killed each other's best friends. I've come to believe that if these depths of healing are possible on those scales, then there's no conflict that is too large for us to transform. In each of those cases, it has been through love and understanding, not shaming and punishment, that transformation was made possible. I'm not naive enough to think that social transformation is possible without a powerful movement that will need to use militant forms of nonviolent direct action to push for change. But even in nonviolent movements, direct action oftentimes begins with an assumption of separation. We are the good people and we need to use direct action to harness power so we can overpower those other people. It is still about forcing our will over the bad people. Our language and thinking is still couched in the worldview of separation and domination. I have to believe that it is possible to do things differently, that it is possible to build a movement that is, quote, disruptive as a riot, in Dr. King's words, yet deeply grounded in love and understanding, a resistance movement that sees its purpose as healing the wounds of society. There is no separation between the personal and the global. A holistic understanding of nonviolence presents us with an opportunity much greater than what either a movement of healing or a movement of resistance can accomplish on its own. We need that. I am sick of fighting for crumbs. I've been part of countless movements and campaigns where we have spent so much time and resources fighting for one policy change, only to look up and see that we are still swimming in injustice. I have been part of so many circles in prison where incredible healing has taken place, only to look up and see two million more incarcerated souls that need healing, with more on the way every day. I am convinced that only a movement that is grounded in a principled approach to nonviolence can get us to where we need to go. A principled approach to nonviolence has an explicit goal that is big enough, not just revolution, but the realization of beloved community, 
and tactics that are militant enough to create systemic change, systemic changes that we need without perpetuating harm while engaging in it. We need resistance. We need to resist injustice. We need to resist violence. We need to resist our own tendency to fall into blame, resentment, greed, hatred, or despair. But we need to do it, <clears throat> we need to do it in a way that is healing to everyone. So just a few words from the introduction of my book mm -hmm. and the, the whole, thank you. That's sweet. Aww, so sweet. Yeah, and just the, the, the whole idea that, to me, political resistance work at its best is about healing wounds between communities and healing the wounds of society, right? And so a lot of the work that I've learned from you and, and, and the work in the, in the prisons about healing trauma and trying to imagine how to extrapolate that out into direct action spheres and how can we imagine direct action movements that are rooted in that spirit of healing, so... Yeah, so that. like that two pages is packed with like 10,000 amazing things that you said that it, we could spend like an hour talking about each one. And so I guess I would just start by asking you, I've heard you say that nonviolence is really a way of life and not like a strategy. Um, and I think people have so many misperceptions of nonviolence and that maybe just starting with um, like at its core and at its essence, how would you describe what nonviolence is and isn't? Yeah, I feel like after 20 years, I should know, I should have a, a like a canned response to that. Um, it, it's actually in some ways for me a lot easier to talk about what nonviolence isn't. So I'll start there. Um, and I'll start by sharing a story that that's in my book as well. Um, and a story that I've shared a bunch of times in my workshops for anyone who's ever been. <clears throat> um, in Kingian nonviolence, we make a distinction between nonviolence spelt with a hyphen and nonviolence spelt without the hyphen. Uh, because when you put the hyphen in the word, it separates the word and it turns it into an adjective. And non-hyphen violence, all that says is something is not violent and something is the absence of violence. And I talk about in my book how that is the biggest and most dangerous misunderstanding of the idea of nonviolence is that people think that as long as I'm not being violent, then I'm practicing nonviolence. And the story that I want to share is uh, I live in a neighborhood in Oakland called Funktown, which is a, a beautiful neighborhood. It's one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the country. Um, and it also has, you know, its fair share of challenges. And so there's a lot of conflict outside my my window every day. And about 10, year, <clears throat> about 10 years ago now, I was taking a nap in my apartment and I was woken up by a commotion outside. And there was an argument happening, and arguments happen all the time in my neighborhood, so I was just trying to go back to sleep. And the argument kept getting worse, and it kept getting worse, and it kept getting louder. And I finally got out of my bed and looked down the window, and there was a woman on the ground who was getting beat. She was right below my window. I live on the second floor. And she was not only getting beaten, but she was screaming for help. And so I jumped up out of my bed and I put on my shoes and I ran downstairs, opened up the gate. And by this point, they had gone across the street. I was still going on. And I ran across the street and I managed to break up this fight. And by the time I got down there, about 15 of my neighbors had heard the commotion and they had all come outside. And they were just watching this woman get beat, not doing anything to help. And I always argue that all of my neighbors who were just watching this woman get beat were practicing non-hyphen violence in that they weren't being violent. They were explicitly being not violent, right? They weren't throwing the punches, they weren't throwing the kicks. And you could even argue that I was being more violent than my neighbors were because I used a limited amount of physical force to pull the two parties apart and I might've caused some harm in the process. So if our understanding of nonviolence is simply to not be violent, then it's easy to justify being a bystander and witnessing the killing of unarmed black people by the police, the destruction of our planet, rises in homelessness, increases in, 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 in drug use, all of these things, and just say, that's none of my business. I'm just going to stay in my corner and meditate and, 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 you know, and, and buy organic groceries and, and consider myself a nonviolent person. But nonviolence is not about what not to do. Nonviolence is about when you see violence and injustice in your community, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to engage with the harm and with the violence and with the injustice and try to transform that situation? And so it is, you know, one of the principles, the first principle of, of nonviolence is nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people because 
in order to make that kind of fundamental transformation in society, it can't just be a switch that you turn on when you go to a protest Mm -hmm. and then you turn it off when you're home or even when you're in the organizing meetings organizing the protest, right? And so, yeah, it's it's a worldview and a way of life and a a way that we understand the world and try to walk in the world. Um, You sort of started to get into it that there are these six principles of Kingian nonviolence, right, that are really at the sort of foundational for what nonviolence is. And maybe I know that you would spend like five days in a workshop explaining what each principle was and engaging them and doing stuff around them. But I think it would be if you would break down some of those for everyone. Um, And also, I think backtracking a little bit, like why Dr. King and how that was an influence for you and why, why is that the path that you think we should be embarking on? Well, maybe we could start there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I guess I'll, I'll say that, you know, I, I had an opportunity to interview um, Clay Carson once years ago. He's the, the the founder and director of the Dr. Martin Luther King Research and Education Center at Stanford. And he said that Dr. King didn't start a movement, right? That he was just like one kind of point in a movement that has been going on since the beginning of human history. And so in that sense, while my particular training has been under the lineage of Dr. King, ultimately nonviolence is a timeless set of teachings. And and for me and my story, it just happened to have come through Dr. King. But I had, uh, as I was sharing, I started facilitating nonviolence trainings when I was 19 years old. Uh, And then I felt that something was missing in the trainings that we were doing. And so I stopped doing it. And I stayed involved in social change work. It's pretty much all I did since I was 17 years old. And fast forward 10 years after I stopped facilitating these nonviolence trainings, like during that whole time, I was involved in a lot of different movements, but the word nonviolence didn't really mean much to me. Mm -hmm. And in 2008, in the fall of 2008, I had the opportunity to work for another movement elder, Harry Belafonte. And through his relationship, because of um, Mr. Belafonte's relationship with Dr. King, the organization that I was working with um, that Harry Belafonte started uh, had chosen to use this training philosophy called Kingian Nonviolence as its core training philosophy. So this organization, The Gathering, was going around the country doing these Kingian Nonviolence trainings. And I was on the executive committee of the organization. So when the training came to Oakland, I was like, I guess I should go check it out. And in two days, like my life completely changed. After 10 years of doing nothing but social change work, I thought I had some idea of what the word nonviolence meant and some idea of who Dr. King was. And it turns out I knew none of it. Um, And so in those two days, I gained this like really intellectual fascination with this theory of nonviolence. And two months later, a young man named Oscar Grant was shot and killed um, in Oakland. Most most people probably know that story. And I ended up on the steering committee of the coalition that came together to respond to the shooting. And having just taken this training, like I could just feel from the just the the very bottom of my heart that we needed a nonviolent response in this new way that I understood the word. But having just taken this two-day workshop, I didn't know how to articulate it. And so... I found myself just like stumbling through my words and getting booed at community meetings and trying to convince people and trying to talk to people about this newfound like wisdom that I I just couldn't, the words were just not coming out of my mouth. And so that summer I decided to go to the University of Rhode Island where every year they do uh, an intensive training to certify new trainers in Kenyan nonviolence. And I traveled there that summer and met Dr. Bernard Lafayette, who is the co-author of the the King in Nonviolence Curriculum, who was on Dr. King's senior staff and got to meet him and was trained by him and I've pretty much been doing that work ever since. So, you know, over the, over the times, like I've definitely found that like my path into the work of nonviolence was through Dr. King, but the work of the Ahimsa Collective, like it's all in you that lineage, you know. divert a little bit, but we're going to just stay focused on you the whole time. It's really fun. Um, the there's something that I know you've talked about before. There's this way that when we're talking about violence, it's like important to make the clarity between interpersonal violence and systemic violence and um, all these different levels of violence. 
And there's some things you say in, in your book about how you believe that whatever way we transform violence on the interpersonal level, you believe that we can actually really scale that up um, to like large social change levels using like a fractal metaphor of nature, right? That we can just sort of multiply. And I wonder if you'll just talk about that a little bit about sort of um, how can we understand um the nature of when we're thinking about nonviolence as the broad framework, how it's applied both on the interpersonal level and the systemic level and the relationship between them. Yeah. So this is, I guess, a plug. I know this j- book just came out, but I've started to work on my second book, uh, which is called Yay. Fierce Vulnerability. Um, and that book gets a lot deeper into this idea of change being fractal because it's a new thing that I'm, I'm exploring, but yeah, doing, work in prisons with Sonia Shah. Oh my God. I've um, like, I've really gotten to see what it takes to heal trauma, right? And uh, reading books like Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown, um, I've gotten into this idea of fractals and fractals are like patterns that kind of repeat itself over and over and over again. And no matter how small you zoom into something or how far you step back and look at the big picture, it looks the same. And I've started to think about this idea that change is fractal in nature, that not only that what's possible at the smallest scale is possible at the larger scale, but the same principles that guided transformation at the interpersonal level have to be used at the larger social levels, right? So I think people who do a lot of restorative justice work and transformative justice work, at least intellectually, understands that you can't shame people into transformation, that if someone causes harm, by shaming them and isolating them and calling them bad people and criminals, like that it doesn't work to transform that person. And yet when it comes to direct action and when it comes to these social problems, we feel like we can shame the other side into transformation. And you know, one thing that I've been playing around with in, in these fierce vulnerability workshops, which are these workshops that East Point has developed over the last year or so, is that um you know, I have a, a a family member who has a lot of unhealed trauma. And that trauma manifests. And like over the years, we've had many conversations with her about her relationships with money and men and her son and work and career and all of these different things. And at some point, I realized that she has some like deep core traumas. And if that core trauma doesn't get healed, then we're always going to be dealing with these manifestations. And at a larger level, this country has an infinite amount of issues that we're dealing with, whether it's police violence or environment or the broken government or economics or education, all these things. But this country has some core trauma. This country is is built on the genocide of indigenous peoples and the enslavement of African peoples. And those are core traumas that we have never healed. So until we heal those things, there's always going to be manifestations of that trauma. And I've found that, you know, one of the most healing things that we can do on an interpersonal level is to create spaces where people feel safe enough to talk about their biggest shame, right? There's a great quote that I learned in in prison through Ahimsa um, that uh, I think it's actually a Brene Brown quote who says that um, shame derives its power from being unspoken, And when you can give space for people to speak to our shame, it's incredibly liberating. But you have to create containers where people feel safe enough to say, yes, I did this thing, and to trust that they're not going to be isolated from beloved community. Because if they feel like if I admit to this thing, I'm going to get thrown out of society, they're never going to admit to it. Um, And being able to say I did this thing is part of their healing process. And I, I think when we think about the legacies of slavery and the legacies of genocide on, on, on this land, and even some of what's happening now on the border and all these things, like these are things that the country should be ashamed of. And how do we use direct action to actually create a conversation that feels safe enough for the country to talk about that and to really sit with the shame of gaining all of these privileges out of such harm and oppression and violence? And so, yeah, like the same ways in which we do restorative justice work in the prisons, I'm trying to picture what that could look like in in direct action spaces and resistance spaces. Yeah, it's beautiful work and thinking. And it it sounds both like 
um, a call for like massive reparations and truth and reconciliation processes and one way of doing things. And I, the other day you were saying something of, I'd love to see in the middle of like a direct action that people actually could break into circle and do some like deep healing work about the thing that was at the core of the core of the core of why they were even there in the first place. Does that sound about right? Yeah. And actually, Amy, who's in the audience, has some experiences of that. There's One of the, the stories that inspired me was there was a direct uh, action that happened in Tarasonburg. North Carolina, where a group of activists occupied the the governor's building, um, and in the the people, Chris amongst them, um, before they went and did that action, they had a conversation about like what are the characteristics that we want to embody in this action. So they actually made an agreement that they wouldn't chant, that they wouldn't hold signs, that instead they would sit in circle, and just talk. And many of them coming to tears about this was uh, an action to try to get uh, a pipeline that was being proposed to, to, to be stopped um, and to talk about why they're there and to talk about the fear that they have about their kids and, and the indigenous communities that they're in relationship with and, and the impact that it would have on them. And yeah, like I don't know if I've ever been to a lot of direct actions where we're leading with vulnerability as our strength. Right. And, and that's the idea of fierce vulnerability is like, what kind of healing work do we need to do on our own so we can show up in direct action spaces and lead not with our anger and not with resentment, but with our own vulnerability? Mm-hmm. Um, there's an elder named Lenise Pinkard, who's also an incredible uh, activist. And she says that we need to have a movement that has a uh, that has the courage to have a relationship with our heartbrokenness. Mm-hmm. And all these issues actually should break our hearts and we should be leading with that. But if we're leading with our heartbreak, then we need to do like our own healing work so that I love quotes. There's another quote that says, preach from your scars, not from your wounds. Mm -hmm. Like we need to do enough of our own healing work so that we can build these scars over these wide open wounds so we can lead from that place. So yeah. That's beautiful. Um, They were like, you know, Kazu says things and like, you know, it's that moment where you have five things I want to say so badly and then I forgot them because I was so intently listening. Um, but I'm, I remember one of them and there, there were two that I really wanted to pull out. Um, one was uh, about this idea. It feels like there's so much of this that has to be grounded in a worldview of non-separation. And it's something that you talk about in the book of this notion that like we're so used to this idea of you know, I'm here and I'm protesting and then it's against the other. Um, And I've I've heard you talk about um, being in a mass protest and, you know, really trying to convince people that the line of police are not the enemy, that it's the violence itself that is, right? And and that this huge, like, idea of non-separation and non-binary and 200% realities and the dialectical that you learned is so expansive and big for people to get their head around. Um, but I just, I, w- I was hoping you would speak to it a little bit about just that if we're not grounded in a view of the other is not um, this person, but the other is this thing, then how do we get, how, how do we get there? Yeah. Basically. Um, there's a famous quote and I write about this too, that a lot of people are familiar with. It comes from the Aboriginal peoples of Australia that says that if you are here to save me, you're wasting your time. But if you're here because your liberation is bound with mine, then we can walk together. And that's a quote that's like very popular in activist circles. And I'm convinced that most people who quote that don't actually believe it. Um, That when activists say justice for all people, that most often what they mean to say is justice for all of my people. And that justice oftentimes comes at the expense of justice for those people. And Dr. King, the famous quote too, he said that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied by a single garment of destiny, that what affects one person directly affects all people indirectly. And these ideas of, yeah, like this interwoven web of reality, that what affects me directly affects all people indirectly and vice versa, is this it's 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 a universal principle that we either believe in or we don't. <laughs> this thing that I oftentimes talk about, it's like the universe doesn't weave separate webs of interdependence based on political affiliation. 
right? Like we either believe in interdependence and 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 mutual solidarity and mutual liberation, or we don't. And in in nonviolence, I think that is one of the the core teachings: is that we are not free until all people are free, right? And when we say all people, we actually have to mean all people. Or the principle, just the the very fundamental core teaching of that principle, just completely falls apart, right? Like it's not, it's we have to if we believe it, then we have to believe it. Yeah, yeah. I remember the thing I wanted to say. I was so excited about it. Um, there's a there's a point in your book and just when you've talked that you talk about like we have to get to the place where we institutionalize nonviolence. Like we actually have to believe and see it as the way to be in the world. And I think. There's something about I don't I don't love the word institutionalized, but I think the spirit of here's the spirit that I feel about it, that we like there's always this like, you know, weird way people are like, oh, are we naturally violent? You know, isn't that just who we are? Um, And that isn't it also that we're actually naturally nonviolent, that that we're actually naturally compassionate. Right. And that there's a way that. Um, that maybe there's this sense of like we've also created a lot of situations of violence and that we have this capacity and ability to actually choose nonviolence as a way to be in the world. And I just wonder if you talk to that about that notion of, quote unquote, institutionalizing yeah. nonviolence. One thing I want to say before that is on just like human nature, right, that it is true that we have the capacity for violence. That is part of our nature. That is part of our reality. And yet there's something about violence that also breaks us, right? And and this is something I heard from a guy named Paul Chappelle. Um, and he says that if violence is part of our nature and if it's part of who we're meant to be, then why does it break us? Like, shouldn't we be able to engage in it without it causing this permanent, oftentimes, damage? Um, and I always think about that because, yeah, like I get that part of our nature is that we are capable of it. But what does it mean for us that we are capable of something that also causes permanent damage and PTSD and anxiety and depression and all these things? And maybe the things that are actually a part of our core nature that we're supposed to be, who we're meant to be, are the things that uplift us and fulfill our potential as human beings, right? And unfortunately, we don't always get to see that because violence has been so institutionalized. Like we talk about how white supremacy and patriarchy and all these forms of violence has been institutionalized and are constantly being reinforced by our media and by government and by law enforcement and schools. And we're just swimming. It's, we're fish in water. Like we don't even see how deeply we're being conditioned into violence and separation. And we're talking about capitalism, how deeply capitalism conditions us to compete against each other and to be to see ourselves as separate. And... Part of the work of Kingian nonviolence specifically is to take the teachings and the practices of nonviolence and go into the same institutions that perpetuate harm and violence and institutionalize its antidote. And like if violence has been institutionalized, then the medicine also has to be institutionalized. So what would it look like if our institutions, schools, media, government, were created in a way that it was constantly reinforcing the best of who we are. And I think that's part of the the work of nonviolence is working within institutions specifically to really integrate these teachings so that um, we're constantly being reinforced with a, with a different way of relating to each other. Because mm-hmm. otherwise we fall back on our default, right? There's another quote that I love. Um, it's an ancient Greek soldier who said that we don't rise to the level of expectations, we fall to the level of our training. Right? Like we have these wonderful expectations about wanting to create beloved community and wanting to be kind to each other and wanting to love our enemies. And then when the conflict happens, because of the ways that we've been conditioned, we fall back to our defaults. And for most of us, our defaults in conflict are responding to conflict in ways that create separation because that's how we've been trained. And so how do we train ourselves to, to have a new default? And it takes a while. It takes institutionalization. You. Are you good? Yeah, I'm just, good. Okay, yeah, cool. I'm just, just checking in, there. just seeing how it's going. Um, there's like some personal questions I want to ask you, but I had a few more other ones. Um, I know too many things about Kazuda. Oh, Lord. Oh, dear. When we were doing the mic check, we were having this real personal conversation. I was like, oh, wow, this is going all over the mic. That's interesting. Um, 
I lost my train. Oh, so there's this beautiful, he also, Kazu's got these beautiful quotes in his book. And one thing I love that you said was that nobody's ever been traumatized by compassion. But like, if you asked a room of people, like how many people have been traumatized by compassion, nobody would raise their hand, right? But people have been traumatized by violence. And at the same time, you are have this beautiful way of understanding like what violence is. And that sometimes violence is needed for survival. That sometimes violence is needed for safety because there is no other means. Um, and I love this thing that you say, I'm sorry, um, about... Um, Um, how violence might be necessary, but never, but violence can never create, restore, or reconcile a relationship, right? And just making these distinctions between, like, we know that it's needed sometimes, and it also doesn't restore or reconcile. And I'm going to go on with one more thing, because it was this huge aha moment to me in a person who does, like, restorative justice work. Um, you mentioned, I think it was from Rosenberg, this difference between like protect, what is it? protective use of protective force use of force and punitive, and punitive yeah. use of force. And I think I could like say what it is, but maybe, well, from my understanding, protective use of force is when you have to use a limited amount of violence to do as little harm as possible. And punitive use of force is the use of force that is for punishment's sake. So the difference between stopping a fight uh, versus like um, sending someone to prison. And I, that was like really like blew my mind today because I was in this whole area where in restorative justice land where our, everyone's like, do no harm. And how do we not be violent? And, da, da, da. and how do we talk about these like gradations of harm um, and, and how they operate? So I guess what is my question? My, I'm just excited. And I think it's about you to talk a little bit about all these like nuanced way that you understand what violence is. Yeah, it's a complex world. <laughs> and these like black and white ways of looking at things is is actually a form of violence, right? There's another quote um, that says, uh, the black, white, right, wrong way of looking at the world is the most pervasive way that our minds have been colonized by the state. Um, and so, like, I believe in beloved community as the goal. I believe in reconciliation as the goal. And it's going to be a really messy process to get there. And I am a lifelong fan of martial arts. Um I think people should know how to defend themselves when, if, if and when necessary. I, I also think that oftentimes advocates of nonviolence um, find themselves making judgments against communities who feel like they have no other recourse than violence to survive. And I think those judgments are oftentimes seething in privilege. It's easy to judge people for using violence when your life and your community isn't being threatened with annihilation on a daily basis um and so yeah like i said and like you said and from the book like i i think violence is very effective in keeping you alive and i think there's great value in that but i'm not interested in just barely surviving right like i'm interested in beloved community and so understanding that violence can be very effective in keeping you alive and keeping you safe and keeping you protective. And there's value in that. And we shouldn't judge people for that. And if our goal is beloved community, then it's not enough because violence can never heal those relationships. And if we're not healing relationships, then there's always going to be conflict. And there's a incarcerated trainer that I work with, a Kingian trainer in a Soledad prison named Bilgi. We call him professor Bilgi because he's one of those guys that like, he never forgets anything. He's a brilliant guy. And he said to me once that resolving a conflict is about fixing issues and reconciling a conflict is about repairing relationships. And you can use nonviolent tactics to resolve issues. You can even use violence to resolve issues. You can use violence to force a policy change or even a change in government or what, whatever. Those are fixing issues. But if we're not repairing relationships then that conflict and that resentment is going to surface somewhere else around some other issue. And so if we're not working to heal relationships and mend relationships and strengthen relationships and move closer to beloved community, then there's always going to be more reason to use violence at some point. And so not to put a blanket judgment on violence, but to make it very clear that violence alone will never get us to beloved community. And so it's the um, nonviolence to me is the exploration of 
like what more is needed to get us to a beloved community. Um, we skipped that sort of question. I think it's a good time to return to it about kind of walking us through the principles of Kingian nonviolence because I think there's some those building blocks are huge. Yeah. So, yeah, the six principles of Kingian nonviolence is like at the core of the the theory, and it's amazing that. Um, you can take six sentences, and I probably could talk about it for six hours, and and um, I, mean, I wrote whole, whole chapters on each one of them. So principle one is nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. We talked about that, um, that nonviolence is a way of life, and because we understand nonviolence to be about asking ourselves what we do about violence and injustice as opposed to just saying, I'm not going to be violent, that takes incredible courage. Um, it takes incredible courage to stand up to injustice and to resist injustice. Um, and also there's a whole other level of, there's a, um, a, I quote the, one of our other trainers in Soledad Prison um, who once said that it took me no courage to commit homicide, that that was an act based entirely on fear. And the co- most courageous thing I have ever done was to show up to a group and share all of who I am. Mm-hmm all of my insecurities and my shame. And that was the most courageous thing that he's ever done. And so I really found that a lot of the trauma healing and RJ work that happens in, in, in prison and, and doing that work is, it takes incredible courage and it's deeply, deeply an important element of the work of nonviolence. Um, principle two is that the beloved community is the framework of the future. Um, again, this idea of beloved community being a world where all people have achieved justice and we're not there yet. So that's why it's the framework for the future. Um, but I oftentimes tell people, because people oftentimes say, oh, like my church community is my beloved community. My family is my beloved community. And it's like, yes, and because building beloved community isn't about loving the people that are easy to love. Right? Building beloved community is about cultivating the type of compassion that allows us to love the people that are difficult to love the people that are like on the quote, the other side. And if we're not doing that work, then we're actually not doing the work of building beloved community. Like loving communities are important and they should be celebrated. But when Dr. King talked about beloved community, that's the world that he was talking about. Um, Principle three is attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. Uh, The idea that people are never the enemy, that injustice is the enemy, that this idea of separation, violence, that's the enemy that we're trying to defeat. Principle four is accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause to achieve the goal. That's a mouthful. Um, it's about partially about acknowledging that if we are going to stand up to injustice, then it will be hard for you and you will probably suffer along the way. But And, and that's whether you choose to use violence or nonviolence to resist injustice, right? If you accept the fact that you're going to suffer, then it gives you a different relationship to that suffering and it can actually make you stronger. But if you go into, like I found this with a lot of activist communities, it's like, yes, we're going to resist injustice, but if they hurt us, then we're going to get really mad that we're being hurt. As if we should expect it to be easy and for the systems of injustice to just like give up and, and right. Um, and so the acceptance of the inevitable suffering that comes with resisting forces of violence is I think a really important practice in nonviolence. And also um, is a story that I oftentimes tell that when I was a kid uh, and I was getting into trouble, as long as my mom would scream at me, it was easy for me to ignore her. But the moment that she started to cry like all the walls that I would build would come crumbling down and I could understand the impact that my actions were having on her because there's something that happens to humans when we see human suffering. And so part of the work of nonviolence is accepting that suffering on Main Street in broad daylight and to like show the world what that suffering looks like to expose the injustice of these systems. And that narrative of like, if you're able to maintain nonviolence, even in the face of state repression, that paints such a clear picture of who's standing on the right side of justice. And that like moral argument is one of the most important, quote unquote, weapons we have in nonviolence. Right. And so choosing to accept that suffering can actually help us move towards our goal. And if we accept too much of that suffering, then it turns into internal violence. 
And so the fifth principle is avoid internal violence of the spirit as well as external physical violence. Internal violence can manifest as as hopelessness and desperation and apathy and and negative self-talk. But I think more importantly, it oftentimes manifests as hatred and resentment. Um, How has that been, like, how have you dealt with internalized violence? When I, the first time I ever went to a 10-day meditation workshop, it was two years or so after I had a huge falling out with a friend of mine. Um, It was my best friend at the time. And I had thought that I was over it until I sat down and closed my eyes. And for 10 days, all I could think about was how pissed off I still was. Um, And there's this quote that says, hating someone is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And so I think having enough self-awareness to notice where our resentment is and finding the practices to work on it because it will eat you up. Um, And so for me, meditation practice has been really important, doing restorative justice work and seeing what healing and transformation looks like from people that have caused so much harm has been deeply important. Um, Yeah, like engaging in this kind of work, you know, has been deeply important. Nature, my dog, you know, watching the Boston Celtics as long as they're winning. Um, (laughs) I, I think different things work for different people, right? And so I guess I wanted to ask you that also about the fourth principle of like, how did you get to the place of accepting that suffering was just inevitable? Just noticing through these meditation retreats or, you know, I used to live in monastery when I was 19, 18, 19. And I oftentimes joke with my meditation teacher that life in a Buddhist monastery is not unlike a prison labor camp. Like it's (laughs) really, really rigid. Um, And just noticing how much I was able to grow from choosing to put myself in that situation, right? Um, And yeah, just seeing the benefit of what it, what I gain out of accepting, choosing to accept suffering, you know? Um, Yeah, like growth hurts. Mm -hmm. Puberty sucked. Painful. You know? But like that's how we grow. So, so yeah. Yeah, it's a tough age. I remember that. And then the last principle is um, the universe is on the side of justice. And coming from more of a Buddhist background, I think I interpreted a little bit differently than how King saw it. For him, I think it was just a deep act of faith. Um, But for me, I always talk about how, you know, when you Google the word justice, uh, like do a Google image search, it's the scales of balance that comes up, right? That's how we understand this idea of, of justice as balance. And so when you look at it that way, I always say that every time a young person gets shot and killed in the streets of Oakland, that is evidence to me that the universe is just because I look at all of the investments that we make into systems of violence, not just the 500 year legacy of violence on this country that I was talking about earlier, but like we invest in guns, we invest in broken, uh, broken schools and, and broken prison systems and broken policing systems and unjust economic policies. And we invest in drugs and we invest in violent media and we invest in all these systems of violence. And then when we see violence in our communities, it's like, what is wrong with the universe when that's all we've been putting out there? And so to me, as long as we invest in systems of violence at the rate that we're investing in, then it is just, it is balance, it is the order of the universe that will make sure that we see those returns. And so I think it's up to us to, to invest in different things and we'll see those returns. Um, so I wanted to transition into like a couple more personal, just like who is Kazuland okay. conversations. And I was in Kazuland all day today and I, I say that with a lot of love and endearingness of just, you know, it's so nice to spend time with somebody and think about who they are in the world. And so I, I listened to an interview that you had on KPFN. I loved this question that um, the person asked you, which was just, how did little Kazu become big Kazu yeah. in this work? How did the little guy become the big guy? Yeah. What happened? Um, so many things. I, the first person that I credit in my book is my mom, right? Um, my mom was never an activist or anything, but like even through a lot of just struggles growing up, it was her, like I used to be embarrassed that she would like meditate 
and like read books by the Dalai Lama <laughs> and like do all these new agey things. And here I am having just spent a week in Dharamshala with you and, and listening to teachings from the His Holiness and meditating and all Losing these things. Losing my shoes. Oh, that was a thing. Buying bells and, and, um, but we, like, I had a interesting childhood where for the first several years of my life, life was good. Life was comfortable, you know, when I was in Japan, but a series of complicated events. And we went from, actually, it was a brief moment when I was 11, um, that I lived in a multi-million dollar oceanfront mansion for like a year. And we went from that to homelessness in like a span of a year and a half, maybe, Um and and my mom ended up in a in a, an abusive green card marriage and just like saw my life just collapse in front of me really quickly and so i ended up um starting to smoke weed and drink and and smoke cigarettes and skip school i ended up dropping out of high school and and was just doing nothing productive and when i was 17 years old i heard about these buddhist monastics that were organizing a walk from Massachusetts down to New Orleans um, and then eventually down the coast of Africa to retrace the slave route. Um, it was called the Interfaith Pilgrimage of the Middle Passage. And their whole idea was, you know, we were talking about before, that we're not going to be able to address racism today if we don't unpack that legacy and start there, as well as the genocide of indigenous peoples. And so it was a walking spiritual pilgrimage to uncover the real legacy of slavery and how it still impacts this country and to begin the healing process by taking the spirits of deceased African ancestors from the United States back to Africa, essentially reversing the middle passage, right? Um, and I was 17 years old. I'd never done any activism or anything. I was just like, yeah, racism sucks and this sounds <laughs> cool and I'm bored and it's a drug and alcohol free walk and I should probably sober up for a little while. So I'm going to check it out for a week. And I didn't come home for a year and a half. Um, and so that was my introduction to Buddhist practice. It was my introduction to nonviolence. It was my introduction to social change work. Um, and that's all I've known since. Uh, that was my college. That was my, that was my everything, you know. So, yeah, I definitely credit that pilgrimage and those monks and nuns at a time when, you know, I talk about in the book too. Like if I had met a cult leader, I would have joined a cult. If I had met a military recruiter, I would have absolutely gone off to war. And had I gone off to war, I would have come back with without even a GED, might have ended up as a prison guard. And who knows what like all the, you know, and, and I always just think about how delicate our life path is and, and how we like to think it's so, like like we could never be like those people. Mm -hmm. We could never do those things. And life is so delicate. It's just like these little things that happen throughout our lives that dictate so much of who we become, you know? And so it's been... I've been really grateful to be able to work with so many different communities to really be able to say that like there's nothing that's different about me than anybody else out there. You know? I mean, it feels like you're describing yourself to like 25 and then there's this like, then 20, you or, 19. 20, I came back from monastery when I was 19, 19, 20, so, yeah. 19 years old. So when you started to engage in like social movements, yeah. like what was that? trajectory like for you and like how you found your way from there to here yeah so i came back from monastery i ended up spending a year living in monastery in south asia and i came back when i was 19 and i just dove into like every organizing scene that i could get my hands on and it was a lot of like prison reform work and it was also a lot of political prisoner work but i really cut my teeth in the global justice movement in the late 1990s um the protests against the world trade organization and the imf world bank all of that. And that was the first time I've ever been part of like mass mobilizations of being in the streets with like tens of thousands of people. And it was so inspiring for me. And I was hooked. It was like a drug. And so for years, I felt like I was like protest hopping in some ways, like organizing major demonstration after major demonstration after major demonstration. And then I ended up getting a job with an organization called the Peace Development Fund and stayed there for 10 years. They have an office in San Francisco. Um, it was actually a, a foundation, but a foundation that was asking questions like, what does it mean to build relationships with our grantees that aren't based on the money that we give away? And so I spent more time, way more time with our grassroots partners than we did with donors or other foundations um, and spent 10 years in 
deep relationship, like people who became literally members of my adopted family um, with the some of the most amazing grassroots leaders all over the country and learning the importance of relational organizing and like these like professionalized nonprofit movements where things like we talk about like conflict of interest if if our relationships are too over familiar which is a whole other thing in prison too but realizing <laughs> that like no like if we can't build like family relationships with the people that we're in struggle with like then what like what are we trying to build and so i think those 10 years at the peace development fund was really foundational in in, in learning what it takes to build real movements you actually turned me on to this thing that's been really in like very instrumental for me in terms of frameworking like how social change happens and it's that piece that originates from Gandhi and it's seen its iterations through the Aini Institute of these three areas that are required for social change do you I'm not going to give them away will you will you I think it would be beneficial for others because yeah, it really it really changed the way that I understood what needed to happen in yeah. order for change to happen. Me too. Um, it, it, a lot of scholars who studied the work of Gandhi kind of retroactively said that Gandhi was always involved in three realms of nonviolence and that for him, the word nonviolence meant these three things. Um, one was uh, self-transformation, self-purification, which was the work of um, like spiritual practices to align our values with our practice. Um, and kind of now that we have science like trauma healing, I would incorporate that into it, right? Doing the work that we need to do to rid ourselves of resentment and hatred and making sure that we're able to actually like walk our talk. Um, and then the work, the realm of what's called constructive program, which is about like building the institutions and the systems that our communities need and that we don't need the state's permission to take care of our communities. And Carlos Saavedra from the Aini Institute, a close friend, sometimes says that even in our most successful movements, oftentimes our demand is to get the state to do something for us. And we need to start doing for our own communities. I mean, the Black Panther Party was a great example of that, right? It wasn't just the guns. It was all of the amazing work that they were doing to serve their community. That's all constructive program work. Um, and then finally, the work of what Gandhi calls Satyagraha, um, which is the the kind of like nonviolent civil disobedience, direct action, um, like the political resistance movements, the, the movements that are in direct confrontations with the, with the powers of injustice, um, and that we need to be doing all three of those things at the same time. Uh, and my friend and colleague Chris wrote a book called The Gandhian Iceberg, um, where he said that, yeah, these are the three things that Gandhi was working on. But if Gandhi could explain it for himself, he wouldn't have seen it as three circles coming together as a Venn diagram, that he would have seen it as an iceberg. Partly because the iceberg is like one chunk of ice. It's not three separate things coming together. Like the work of self-purification, constructive program, and political resistance is the same work, and we need to see it that way. But also because the the part of the iceberg that's beneath the water is the work of self-purification because for Gandhi that was the biggest part of the, the work and it's also below the water so you can't see it as much um, and then the realm of constructive program is the the majority of the work that is visible and then at the very tip of the iceberg is political resistance work like we only resist when the things that we're trying to build is being threatened by the powers that be we don't resist just for the sake of resisting um, and the the Satyagraha is at the tip of the iceberg and so it's the thing that you can see from the farthest on out. Mm -hmm. So when we look back historically at movements, we only see the protests and the demonstrations and we don't see all the other work that was happening in community, um, but it's perhaps an even more important part of the work of nonviolence. I saw people taking notes when he talked Read about it. I took iceberg. notes also. And I think some like languaging ways that maybe easy for what I found really easy to understand is like personal transformation, this building of alternatives and then the direct action piece. And I think you also had a friend of yours in the Buddhist peace fellowship had a beautiful way of thinking of it as B build and block. Yeah. Block build B block build and yeah. B. And I think that's just a beautiful way of thinking about how change happens. So one more personal ish question, um, which is just sort of to ask you like, what are the things that you struggle with now in your personal and your work life and don't avoid the personal one. 
by just talking about the work life? No, I, I think the answer okay. to that question is my personal life. Yes, period. I know that's my response. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> and so, how does that relate to internalized violence? I mean, I th- I, there's so many ways in which it manifests, right? Like, obviously, the, the work of nonviolence, it's the hardest to practice with my family, right? And, and you know a little bit about yeah. some of the work that I've been doing with my family, and I feel proud that I've been able to make some strides. But it's so much easier to be doing all of this work out there. Um, there's a concept uh, I won't go too deeply into. It's in the book. Read the book. Um <laughs> called negative peace which is like the like you think things are peaceful because it's like no one's screaming at each other on the surface but just beneath the 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 the, the surface layer there's all this tension and that's kind of how relationships are oftentimes are with my family um and me coming from a conflict diverse culture it's really hard to create spaces where actually where we're actually talking about the really difficult things and so i actually have a lot of like somewhere between embarrassment guilt shame wrapped up around um the things i haven't done for my family right knowing that my family has so much trauma from a really messy childhood and i have the tools i do this work and doing this work with my family is the scariest thing in the world mm-hmm. amen and through the help of sonia shah and the ahimsa collective I've made huge headway even in the past several months and I'm deeply grateful to you and 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 to all the members of the Ahimsa collective for that. But yeah, um it's it's so much easier to write books about this stuff than it is to bring it into our own lives, yeah. you know. Yeah, it is. I guess I haven't written a book, but for you it's easier to <laughs> write a book. Um you know, I've learned a lot from you in terms of I've learned a lot from the way you are, from the way you sit, but I've also learned a lot from the way that you've offered like really easy frameworks to understand things. And another one of those, and it's just, I just want everyone else to have them too, is this notion that you've talked about of of like when you're in a conflict of this triangle between like relationship and skill and structure. structure yeah. And can you just describe that yeah. a little bit of like, I mean, I'm thinking more in terms of like, how you've talked about your family and trying to engage in, mm-hmm. in sort of dealing with conflict. Yeah. Yeah, this is something I learned from Mickey Kashtan, but um, when you're engaged in a conflict, I think th- this Venn diagram of relationship, skill, and structure, and my theory that you need two of those three things to be in place for a difficult conversation to go well. Um, and when uh, years ago, my mother asked me to facilitate some really difficult conversations with my family, and it's my family and I love them. So the relationship was really strong. And I feel like I'm a decent facilitator, but I also knew that as soon as a conversation opened up about our family trauma, whatever skills that I bring to the table as a facilitator would just go right out the window because I would be triggered, right? And so what I needed to do was raise the structure of the conversation. So I, we passed around the talking stick and I wrote like questions, like prompts on pieces of paper, and we would pick up a prompt and read the question and go around uh, the circle and answer the question. And so we didn't need to rely on my skill as a facilitator, the structure facilitated the conversation. So between that structure being in place and between our relationship, we were able to have a really healing conversation. And so yeah, relationship, structure, and skill, if one thing is missing or two things are missing, how can you raise one of the other two um, to really support you in those conversations? See, isn't that going to be really useful when you go home and think about the next really difficult conversation you have? I'm just, right? So just last thing before we end, just is there anything that, I guess I just want to ask, like, what are you, like, what's next for Kazu? What are you excited about? I heard you said you were working on a book. Just like, What's going on in Kazuland that you're jazzed about? I think I posted a while ago on social media, something I'm not doing as much these days, but just this sense that I've been getting over the last year or two. Like I started the East Point Peace Academy, what, six years ago? Because I wanted to give my all to this work. And six years into it, realizing that like giving my all to this work does not mean starting and running and managing a traditional nonprofit organization that that is the exact opposite of what it means actually to be giving my all to this work. And that even like so many of our, of the most amazing organizations are completely consumed by this capitalist way of doing things. And I like, I want to feel like I'm doing liberation work. And what does it mean to be doing work that is about liberation in a way that feels so constricted by this box 
of uh, this corporate structure of how we raise money, how we do evaluations, how we do reporting, like all of these things. And I just remember how free I felt when I lived in monastery when I was 18. Um, and wanting to figure out what it could look like to feel that free while doing liberation work. And so, as you know, this year, we're coming into this year, we've actually decided to do even less fundraising than we've ever done, to do less administration than we've ever done, and just like jump off the cliff and dive in with no work plan, with no fundraising plan, and just like faith like having faith that we are doing the work that we're meant to be doing and just seeing where that takes us. And already it's allowed us to find funding to bring Astrid on board. And and already we're like seeing signs from the universe. I think I could say these things here at CIIS, right? Yes, like, yes, you can. Like I, I feel like I'm seeing like signs from the universe that is telling us that we are on the right path. Um, and so just saying like, fuck it to all the, the ways that I've been taught that I'm supposed to be doing this work and just like giving myself fully to, to what I'm passionate about. And I'm really excited to see where that takes me, you know. Thank you so much, Kazu. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramatush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DeMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fork. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.